Hello and welcome to EG's case review of the year with Sarah Jackman and Jess Harold. It's been another memorable 12 months, political and economic turmoil, the war in the Ukraine and the death of the world's longest serving monarch have characterised some of the more sombre moments of 2022. But there have been brighter moments too. The appointment of the UK's first Indian origin prime minister and, for sports fans, the Lionesses' success in Euro 2022 in July. Closer to home, various cases have caught EG's attention, including several from the Supreme Court. As has become customary, Jess and I have evaluated, discussed and debated the runners and riders and now bring you our top 10 picks of 2022. But first, a few honourable mentions. Bath Rugby Limited versus Greenwood and others came in at the last minute in 2021, just too late to make our rundown last year. But the resulting commentary on this important restrictive covenant case definitely got us off to a strong start in 2022. At the opposite end of the spectrum, the Supreme Court handed down judgment in DB Symmetry Limited and another v Swindon Borough Council only this week, keeping us deliberating until the very end though the planning case did not quite make the cut. Uh, the rights of light dispute in Sarosa Properties Establishment versus the Prudential Assurance Company Limited was one of the year's most highly anticipated cases, but it settled at the 11th hour on confidential terms, ruling it out. And most notable of all, a case that all year we have expected to have a strong showing in 2022 after previous appearances on our 2019 and 2020 top 10 lists. I am talking, of course, of Fern and others versus the Board of Trustees of Tate Gallery, heard by the Supreme Court in December 2021 and still yet to be decided more than a year on. Fingers crossed it will be worth the wait and perhaps an early favourite for the top spot in 2023. But that countdown is a whole 12 months away. Without further ado, let's concentrate our minds on 2022. Starting the countdown in earnest is our number 10 case for 2022, Alberti versus Cadogan Holdings Limited, an enfranchisement case in which the Court of Appeal was asked to determine the correct interpretation of Section 918D of the Leasehold Reform Act 1967. The section is often described as a counterfactual deeming provision for the valuation of the freeholder's interest in a house and premises on enfranchisement. It requires the price payable for that interest to be diminished by the extent to which its value has been increased by improvements carried out by the tenant or their predecessor in title at their own expense. The case concerned a property in Chelsea, SW3, demised to the cartoonist Gerald Scarf on a long lease for a 49-year term. Scarf converted the property from a building containing multiple flats into a single dwelling, which constituted improvements at a time when planning permission was not required by the local council. In 2019, Scarf gave notice to Cadogan of its intention to purchase the freehold under the 67 Act, that date being the valuation date for the Act's purposes. By this date, only two years of the term remained. Alberti purchased the unexpired term of the lease from Scarf, together with the benefit of the claim. However, Alberti and Cadogan were unable to agree a price for the freehold, in part due to their differing interpretation of Section 918D. Litigation ensued, with the upper tribunal finding in Alberti's favour. Cadogan appealed. The Court of Appeal upheld the tribunal's decision and sided with Alberti. As E.G. Notes columnist Elizabeth Duomo noted, it required a counterfactual assumption to be made that the improvement works had not been carried out. 
accordingly at the valuation date, the building would have comprised only of unconverted flats for which planning permission would not be obtained. The purpose of the assumption was to ensure that the landlord did not get a higher price for the freehold than he would have done if the tenant had not undertaken the improvements. The upper tribunal's interpretation underscored the causal relationship between improvements and the increase in value. At number nine, a high profile high court ruling that the government had fallen short of its net zero obligations. In Friends of the Earth Limited and others versus Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the court found that the government's net zero strategy did not comply with the requirements of the Climate Change Act 2008. As a result, the government has been required to revise its climate strategy to show how key emissions reductions targets will be met. The case has its roots in the Paris Agreement, adopted by the UK in November 2016, in the wake of which the 2008 Act was amended to ensure that the net UK carbon account for 2050 will be at least 100% lower, previously 80%, than the baseline in 1990 for carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. The 2008 Act requires the government to set a carbon budget for each successive five-year period between 2008 and 2052, with a view to meeting the ambitious 2050 target. The UK overachieved on its first two carbon budgets and is on track to meet its third, but Carbon Budget 6 for 2033 to 2037 is the first to be based on the amended target for 2050, and it is fair to say is substantially more challenging. The net zero strategy aimed at meeting it was laid before Parliament in October 2021. But, among other things, the court found that the Secretary of State had failed to include in that NZS information that was legally required, including an explanation for the conclusion that its proposals and policies would enable the carbon budget targets and over what timescale. So back to the drawing board on these crucial strategies, among the many other challenges faced by the government. Another climate related decision, this time from February. It is R on the application of Finch versus Surrey County Council, in which the Court of Appeal upheld an earlier ruling by confirming that Surrey County Council had acted lawfully when it gave planning permission for a new oil well and production facility near Gatwick Airport. The Council gave permission to Horse Hill Developments in 2019 to drill for oil in the area. The project was opposed by locals and environmentalists who challenged the legality of the council's actions. In assessing the case, the Court of Appeal looked at the extent to which the environmental impact assessment carried out by the developer should assess the impact of greenhouse gas emissions resulting from the eventual use of the fuel made from the oil extracted from the site, the downstream emissions. Giving judgment, Sir Keith Lindblom said, it was correct for the council to measure the environmental impacts directly connected with the development and not measure indirect impacts. However, the judgment was not unanimous with the three judge panels split. Lord Justice Lewison agreed with Lord Justice Lindblom, but Lord Justice Moylan found that downstream greenhouse gases should have been measured. Judicial support may well be found for Lord Justice Moylan's dissenting view with an appeal due to be heard by the Supreme Court in 2023. Number seven now, a case in which the Supreme Court was called on to consider for the first time the principles applicable to propriety estoppel and provide guidance in determining an appropriate remedy. Guest and another versus guest raised issues that often seem to arise in farming families. Here, the farm concerned is near Chepstow. Andrew Guest lived and worked there for his parents since leaving school in 1982, with increasing responsibilities over 33 years. 
While he was paid for his toil, he received no great reward, but he was promised by his parents, David and Josephine, that he would inherit a substantial but unspecified share of the farm following his father's death. David and Josephine had made wills in 1981, providing for Andrew and his brother Ross to inherit the farm in equal shares, subject to financial provision for their sister Jan. But from 2008 on, the relationship between Andrew and his parents deteriorated. And in 2014, the parents dissolved their farming partnership and gave Andrew notice to quit the property. Understandably, he raised a claim seeking a share in the farm or its monetary equivalent on the grounds of proprietary estoppel. The court found in Andrew's favour, ruling that the parents could choose between putting the farm in trust in favour of their children, subject to their own life interest, or paying Andrew compensation now, with a reduction to reflect his earlier than anticipated receipt. In so doing, it established a useful test for a proprietary estoppel remedy, elegantly summarised by Louise Clark in the key points from her legal note on the case. Is going back on the promise unconscionable in the circumstances? If so, the simplest remedy is to enforce the promise. Some limitation may be necessary if strict enforcement is disproportionate. Earlier than anticipated receipt requires a discount. At six, not one, but a collective entry, which covers notable, albeit temporary, development and case resolution brought about by the pandemic and the Commercial Rent Coronavirus Act 2022. That act established a new arbitration scheme for the recovery of ring fence rent arrears accrued during the pandemic, which ran from March to September. Six bodies were approved to act under the scheme and a number of arbitration awards have since been published. The first was in July and involves Signet Trading Limited, which operates around 300 retail stores under the H. Samuel and Ernest James brands. It claimed that its offices, used by the board of directors as well as staff responsible for various tasks including buying and merchandising, were affected by the COVID-19 closure requirement that forced it to shut its retail stores. The majority of employees based at the offices were placed on furlough and only 35 members of staff continued to work during the pandemic, almost all of them from home. It sought relief from rent that fell due under its lease for the affected quarters. The landlords, however, successfully argued that the offices were not affected by a closure requirement within the meaning of the 2022 Act. Although this was the first published rent arbitration award, the handful published since have followed a similar trend, with the affected tenant remaining liable. The cluster of cases is interesting, not just for the effect it's had on dealing with outstanding arrears built up during the pandemic, but for the use of arbitration as a mechanism for dispute resolution. Will there be greater emphasis on its use going forward? Or could we, for example, see its, its use extended to other areas of dispute resolution, such as 54 Act cases? And now we reach the top five, for which we will be asking some special guests to share the benefit of their expertise. In fifth place, we have Martlett Homes Limited versus Mullally & Co Limited, a case in which both the Court of Appeal and High Court have had cause to rule this year. It constitutes the first post-Grenfell trial judgment of an English court on a claim for the cost of replacing combustible cladding, a topic that has been widely discussed ever since the tragedy in 2017, and particularly this year with the introduction of the Building Safety Act 2022. The case concerned five social housing towers in Gosport in Hampshire, owned by housing association Martlett Homes. It sought damages from Mullally because the cladding used on the towers consisted of highly flammable expanded polystyrene wall insulation and the mineral wool fire barriers used had been defectively installed. 
Following a Court of Appeal ruling in January, in which Martlett was allowed to amend its claim, it was successful at the High Court in securing the costs of removing and replacing the cladding, as well as compensation for the waking watch it had maintained on the site, encouraging news for any other building owners considering similar claims. We asked Mills and Reeve partner and regular Legal Notes author Stuart Pemble to sum up the significance of Martlett for us. The key point to remember about both the decision of the Court of Appeal and then the subsequent decision at the High Court is that they are public policy decisions. You don't really need to have a great deal of in-depth legal analysis, although you can give both cases some in-depth legal analysis. The Court of Appeal decision was actually on whether a party claiming compensation for a defective cladding could amend its particulars after the expiry of the contractual limitation period, and the Court of Appeal decided that it could, and it decided based on proper authority, but it decided because it was the right thing to do uh, following the Grenfell tragedy. And likewise, when the case was then heard by the High Court, following the Court of Appeal saying, yes, the pleadings can be amended, the High Court allowed the higher amount of damages to be payable. And it did so, again, based on a proper factual analysis of, of breach of contract and cause and effect in contract claims. But it did so because it was the right thing to do in the context of the, the Grenfell tragedy. In at four, Firstport Property Services Limited versus Settlers Court RTM Co Limited and others. A Supreme Court decision on right to manage delivered in early January. The judgment, which overturned the Court of Appeals decision in the previous authority established by Gala Unity Limited versus Ariadne Road RTM Co, determined that leaseholders who require the right to manage building are not exempt from paying their shared services if their block is part of a larger estate. The case was brought by First Port Property Services, a property management company that manages the 10-block Virginia Key Estate in East London. In 2014, the residents of one of the blocks, Settlers Court, acquired the right to manage the building under the Commonhold and Leasehold Reform Act 2002. Settlers Court hadn't paid for the services that were shared across the whole estate, such as landscaping, car parking and security, which rendered Firstport able to recover only 85% of the service charge for whole estate services. Firstport lost in the High Court, which based its decision on an earlier Court of Appeal case, Gala Unity, which found that residents who acquired the right to manage their block also acquired a right to manage facilities on the estate. Leading the four-judge panel, Lord Briggs said, we've unanimously decided that it was not correct and that the right to manage premises conferred by the 2002 Act extends only to the relevant block, in this case Settlers Court, together with facilities used exclusively by flat owners in that block. It does not extend to the estate services, the use of which is shared with the residents of the other blocks of flats and houses in the Virginia Key Estate. The result is that the appeal is allowed and Gala Unity is overruled. Here, James Souter, partner at Charles Russell Speechlease, gives his thoughts on why Firstport is one of the most important cases of the year. This was a really important case that dealt with a, a vexed issue that arose in the context of um, the exercise of the right to manage. And really it focused on the extent of the right to manage that went with um, the exercise of, of that statutory process in relation to a building. It struck really at the heart of the collision of contractual and property rights and statutory rights 
which had in this particular case caused significant issues for buildings who had exercised the right of manage uh, over the years and such so much so that the association of residential managing agents had involved themselves in the appeal process because it had given rise to many problems across the country the supreme court decision was really the only decision that, that could be made limiting the right to manage to just those rights exercised or enjoyed by the particular building in question and, and not extending to a wider estate. And now for number three. Uh, the latest version of the Electronic Communications Code has been keeping the Upper Tribunal Lands Chamber busy with a flood of very similar sounding cases since its introduction in 2017. And a number of those cases have gone on to trouble the Court of Appeal. In 2022, however, things went one step further with the landmark Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited versus Compton Beecham Estates Limited and conjoined appeals, the first telecoms code case to reach the Supreme Court. The appeals in the three combined cases, usually referred to as Compton Beecham, Ashlock and Ontower for short, were brought by providers of infrastructure to mobile network operators seeking to establish new code rights in respective land where they already had equipment installed. The crucial provision was paragraph nine of the code, a code right in respect of land may only be conferred on an operator by an agreement between the occupier of the land and the operator. And the Supreme Court has brought welcomed clarity to an area that had been causing some consternation for providers after the Court of Appeal in Compton Beecham had decided that when an operator has already installed apparatus on land, it will often be both the operator and the occupier of land for the purposes of paragraph nine and in such circumstances would be precluded from applying for new code rights. The Supreme Court decided that an operator which is already a party to a code agreement is not prevented from obtaining additional code rights in respect of the same land. Explaining just why this decision is so important, here is Pinsent Mason's partner and telecoms expert, Alicia Fu. Renewals of code agreements had ground to a halt pending the Supreme Court decision, uh, as landlords and operators waited to see if the Supreme Court was going to follow the, the legalistic approach of the lower courts or give effect to government policy. Practically speaking, the Supreme Court decisions have unpicked the legal lock on renewals, giving operators in situ greater confidence to seek code rights, especially new or additional code rights mid-term to enable 5G rollout. Taking the penultimate spot in our 2022 Cases of the Year podcast is another Supreme Court decision Hillside Parks Limited versus Snowdonia National Park Authority, delivered on the 2nd of November. It is a case that was followed closely by the planning sector because of its potential to affect large housing developments that take a long time to complete. It also had the potential to render previously lawful developments unlawful. The case was brought by Snowdonia National Park Authority over planning permission to build an estate granted more than 50 years ago Developers have been building on the site since. Various planning permissions have been granted and there has been a history of litigation. However, in 2017, the local planning authority decided that a 1967 planning permission was no longer valid as changes to the development over the past 50 years have made it impossible to implement the master plan on which the 1967 planning permission was based. Developer Hillside Parks challenged this and lost in 2020 when the Court of Appeal held that planning permission cannot lawfully be implemented where events since the grant of permission make the permitted development impossible. Hillside appealed to the Supreme Court, but the Court rejected its challenge. 
Giving judgment, Lord Justice Sales said developers cannot pick and choose different elements of different permissions. He added that the master plan has been fatally compromised by other developments, so Hillside Parks cannot now choose to rely on elements of the 1967 permission. Speaking to EG for this podcast, Hannah Quarterman, partner and head of planning at Hogan Lovells, said, So the Court of Appeal decision was seen by many as making it more difficult to build out overlapping planning permissions, and it would hope that the Supreme Court would provide greater clarity on this. Helpfully, it is now clear that starting works on a planning permission which overlaps with another planning permission does not retrospectively render unlawful any development already carried out. However, in many cases, it will mean that no further works can be carried out in reliance on the first planning permission. And there are still big questions which remain around more complex planning permissions like phased permissions and outline schemes. And now for our number one case of 2022, we return to a familiar theme, the spectre of COVID-19 and its impact on landlord and tenant relations. In March of this year, it was estimated that around £8 billion in rent arrears remained outstanding as a result of the pandemic and its associated lockdowns. As mentioned previously, tenants hoping that the arbitration scheme would offer them some relief from the need to pay were disappointed. And the same has been true of those cases where landlords have taken them to court to force them to pay up. In last year's list, we had two slots devoted to such cases. At five, we had Bank of New York Mellon International Limited versus Cine UK Limited and other appeals. And at three, we had London Trocadero 2015 LLP versus Picture House Cinemas Limited and others. So it may come as little surprise that when appeals in those cases are conjoined and considered by the Court of Appeal, the result is the decision that tops our tree in 2022. The blockbuster judgment dismissed appeals by cinema tenants, including of London's famous Trocadero Centre in Piccadilly Circus, who claimed their premises had been rendered unfit for use by government lockdown legislation, and that as a result, they should not have to pay rent for those periods. However, Judge Sir Julian Flo ruled that it could not be said that the property had suffered financial or economic damage. Rather, it is the tenant which has suffered that damage. He found that in both cases, the obligation to pay rent was only suspended where cessor of rent clauses applied. And that was where there was physical damage to or destruction of the premises by an insured risk, rendering them unfit for occupation or use. This decision has been seen as the end of the line for COVID-19 rent defences and a resounding endorsement of the status quo. As Nicholas Trumpeter KC of Selborne Chambers, who represented the successful respondent landlord in the Trocadero case, explains for us. Since the 17th century and the celebrated decision of Paradine and Jane, the courts have made it clear again and again that the fact that a property can't be used for its intended purpose is not a reason for the tenant to disregard its rental obligations. The Trocadero case was an attempt by the tenant to upset this long-standing orthodoxy by suggesting that by the uh, advent of Covid it was no longer liable to pay rent or no longer liable on its rental covenants. And I suppose the significance of the Court of Appeal case was to squash that as an idea and firmly to uh, affirm the orthodoxy that has prevailed over the past four centuries or so. That completes our roundup of this year's top 10 cases after another busy year for the courts. All that is left is to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we look forward to returning, suitably refreshed, to see what awaits us all in 2023. Until then, 
as is traditional. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>